So tonight, as you heard, I want to um, talk about one of my favorite topics, the subject of grace, something that I, I deliberately preach on every so often because it is so foundational for our faith. It's really, really worth revisiting all the time. And this is because what I've seen is as Christians, so often we believe in grace, but so many people struggle to actually live in grace. And a correct understanding of grace is foundational. It really supports our whole Christian life. We know a house with good foundations will stand, whereas a house with poor foundations will have a trouble. And to use an illustration I've also used before, um, I one from my, uh, my work life. I used to have a job where I flew around the world. And one of the places I visited a long time ago was San Francisco. And I went there first in the 1980s, just after they had a major earthquake. Now, for those of you who've seen the films, done any sort of geography, there are, t there are a number of bridges in San Francisco, but there are two main ones. There's the famous Golden Gate Bridge, where if anybody's going to be abducted by an alien, it's usually there, or whatever, it's that. And then there's another one, less known, called the Bay Bridge. Now, after the earthquake, we went there probably about a couple of months afterwards, the Golden Gate Bridge was absolutely fine, but the Bay Bridge had been completely and utterly destroyed. Like a deck of cards, it had collapsed. And this is because the Golden Gate Bridge is built on rock. It is built on granite. So when that shaking came, it stood firm. The problem with the Bay Bridge is that it was built in the sediment of the bay and they sort of put these piles down and they sort of built the bridge on top of it. And anyone who knows any engineering or whatever knows that if you sort of vibrate that, it loses its strength and that's exactly what happened. When the foundation, when the, when the shaking came, the whole bridge collapsed. Foundations are critical. Without them, things fall over. And I would like to say, suggest to you, that it's the same in our understanding and our practice of grace. Because if we don't really get that into our hearts, into our psyche, into the core of our being, when the shaking comes in our own life, often we fall over. Now, I've been a Christian since the age of 16. That's about 10 years or so. Ha, 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 I hear you say quite rightly so. But over the years, I have seen God do some really, really cool things. We've seen him heal people, experienced some amazing answers to prayer, felt that closeness in worship, sort of like we did tonight. We've experienced miraculous provision for me, for the church, for the various things we've been involved in. But also, in those last few decades, I've experienced times where my foundations have been shaking where God has seemed far away, where maybe I've messed up, where I feel like I've let God down, where I've felt really disappointed in myself. And I'm sure there must be some people here tonight, maybe you might be feeling the same thing, foundations having been shaken, maybe feeling a bit beaten up, separated from God, maybe disappointed in yourself at how difficult it is sometimes to be a follower of Jesus. Sometimes you get those accusations coming in saying, hey, you're not good enough, you need to try harder, you need to be better. And if that's you, if you're one of those people who relate to that, I'd like to look at one of Jesus' stories, which I think is a helpful antidote and will help us maybe to grasp a bit more about what this amazing grace is all about. And it's found in Luke 18, and it's the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Hopefully it'll come up there. Excellent. It's, uh, if you've got a Bible, so you can follow it in your Bible. And we're starting at verse 9. So to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood at a, a dis, stood, sorry, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Aren't I good? That was my bit, by the way. That's it. That wasn't in the original Greek. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then Jesus told everyone, I tell you that this man, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And in this parable, it's worth understanding just actually how revolutionary and radical and subversive this story actually was. The Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives. They were the good guys of the day. They were the holy people in society. They represented biblical values, morality, obedience to the teaching of the scriptures. And they loved to remind people of their status. They were the people that everybody looked at as being a step above everyone else. The tax collectors, by contrast, didn't just work for Her Majesty's Rev or His Majesty's revenue and customs and collect the taxes that were due. They were symbols of the hated Roman occupation. They weren't just civil servants. They were classed as traitors doing the work of the enemy, the people who had actually invaded them and were oppressing them. And more than that, because they, th of their position, they abused that and they took more than they were asked to. They were thieves. They were extortion extortionists. They had lots of money. And because of that, they had a really profligate lifestyle. Not only did they take people's money, but they used it to live in ways and to act in ways that everyone was ashamed of. The, to the ordinary Jewish people of the day, the tax collectors were hated. They were absolutely loathed. So in this story, seeing the two of them to come into the temple, we see, they say, the, the Pharisee reminding God of how good he is. Hey, fasting, I do it twice a week. He only needs to do it on, his, uh, on the feast days, but he decides to do it twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He gives more than he needs to, more than he's obliged to. And he's saying, hey, God, not only do I keep the rules, I go further. And then we see the tax collector. He didn't want to come near. He stood at a distance, not feeling worthy to look up to God. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So, of course, the disciples would have expected Jesus to say, hey, it's the Pharisee. He's the one who's justified. And they would have been stunned when Jesus, the Son of God, their rabbi, their teacher, said, the one who was justified was the extorting, treacherous, drunkard, and womanizer, and not the supposedly good guy. Why did he say that? Well, the fact is that fundamentally, the Pharisee had misunderstood the nature of God. The Pharisee thought that he could, by God, appease him, if you like, by what he did, and in doing what he did, somehow obtain his favor and therefore get status in society. And he'd misunderstood the fundamental point that at his heart, God's grace and God's mercy is a gift. It's a charism. It's something that is given freely and nothing we can do 
can earn it. By contrast, the tax collector knew he had no merit, and he just threw himself on God's mercy and his grace, and he said, have mercy on me. That's all he said. And I would say that this Pharisee's understanding, this misunderstanding, is something I've seen quite a lot around you know, the church, the faith, not just our church, but lots of churches, lots of Christianity, amongst Christians over the years, and even with Christians today. And it's not something that's, um, if you like, is something we say. It's just something almost like in our hearts we, we believe. In theology, those of you who've done a little bit of theology, there are a number of models. One model of theology is when you say it's what we called our espoused theology. That is what we say we believe. But the other thing is what we call our operant theology, which is actually what we do and what we live out of. And it's the sort of thing that if a Martian came down and just looked at you for a few weeks and said, what does this person believe, they sort of would write it. And so many Christians I see, we say, yeah, we believe God, we believe it's about grace. But at the heart, in our hearts, deep down, we think, yeah, but I probably need to earn some of it. And probably with what I've done, I'm not very good. We sometimes think we have to earn favor from God, keeping the rules, trying hard not to sin. And that means that if there are areas in our lives, where we are, areas in our lives that we struggle with, and maybe those areas that we struggle with again and again and again, and maybe those ones that we fall in again and again and again. I've come across so many people who think, well, hang on a minute, surely I should be better than this now. Surely I should be able to, uh, surely I should be able to get past this. I should have conquered this. I should have defeated it. And because I haven't, therefore, God mustn't like me anymore. Surely now God is mad with me because I haven't managed to overcome. And the result is I've seen many Christians over the years getting discouraged and disillusioned. And if that's you, I would say look closely at this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector because the truth of Scripture is this. No matter how hard we try, how good we are, how bad we are, we can't earn standing before God. Yes, God wants us to be good disciples, but our standing in him, our position in him, is completely 100% down to his grace, his free gift, and not how good we are or not how able we are to overcome sin. If you read Ephesians 2, chapter 4, it says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him with us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Joanna and I, we have two boys who are now dads themselves, and they are great guys. But when they were small, they had times when they wouldn't go to bed, when they poured sticky stuff on the new carpet, when one of them cut the heads off mummy's nice new flowers with a pair of scissors 
just because they thought it would look nice. They jumped on the settee and broke it. We had times when one brother was unkind to the other, when somebody took some money they shouldn't have done, or when another one of them dented the car. You can imagine, normal stuff for growing up. As their dad, though, as I look back, what do I see when I look at them? I don't look, time, look back and say all the times and remember all the times they were a pain in the backside, although there were quite a few. Let me tell you what I see when I see Dan and Will. I see two great guys, fabulous individuals, two guys who I am proud of, who I love so much and I would do anything for. The thing is this, when God looks at you and looks at you and looks at you and looks at you, even looks at you, looks at you, he looks at you the same way. He doesn't look at you and see the areas of mess up and sin and all what have you. He doesn't look at me and say, hey, there's Andy, when is he going to get his act together? He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, hey, I love you, Yimin, Hannah, Xavier, Sam, you know, Clive. He looks at you, Andy, and says, I love you because in you I see Jesus. And he does that and he looks at me and he doesn't count that all my stuff against me because several decades ago I prayed the prayer asking Jesus Christ to come into my life. I knew I needed forgiveness. I knew I needed a fresh start. And I know that I am saved for an eternity, not because of anything good I've done or because I'm a vicar or anything like that. It's because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. That's how God looks at me. And you know, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is how God looks at you. John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, once said this, the phrase, the way in is the way on. The way in to our relationship with God is by grace through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, and importantly, the way on in our relationship is by grace through his son Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross. We never ever graduate from the cross. It is always the way. So when we mess up, if we fall and if stuff is there and we're aware of the, the stuff that's going on in our life, you know, that prayer that the tax collector play, prayed, God have mercy on me a sinner, is as valid the 10,000th time we pray it as it is the first time we pray it. It is as valid when we are 90 as when we were 19. And let's be clear, right? God hates sin. It's the path to harm to ourselves and to others. It went, it's what put Jesus on the cross. Sin has consequences, which is why God wants us not to do it. But it's God's grace alone that justifies us, makes us right with God, and not our ability not to sin. I'm going to repeat that. It's God's grace alone that justifies us and not our ability not to sin. We deserve nothing, but God gave his most precious gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ, as a free gift. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for every sin we've ever done up until today. Every sin we've done today and we will do and every sin that we will do for the rest of our lives and the cross will always be the eternal place of freedom 
forgiveness of power and victory. The cross will always be the place of grace for the first time and the 10,000th time. So if tonight you're sort of struggling and you're feeling like condemned or not good enough or wondering why you know, we are as we are because we all have stuff that we're dealing with, then what do we do? Well, I'd say we need to do two things. The first thing we need to do is we need to come and receive his forgiveness. Recognizing that we are powerless, we can't do it ourselves, praying that tax collector's prayer, asking for God's forgiveness and his grace, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we bring our struggles and our sin to the foot of the cross, to God's throne, and permanently leave it there. And if you find that you are helpless to fight against a certain sin, a certain area that really dogs us again and again and again, then I would say, don't pray for the strength to fight it. We can't fight it. The only person who can fight it is God. We throw ourselves on his mercy. We hand it over to God once and for all, and we don't take back the guilt. Corrie ten Boom, the famous uh, Dutch, the famous saint of the last uh, hundred years, she had a, a saying that said, you know, where God says he takes our sins from us and he throws it in the depths of the sea. And then he puts a sign up that says, no fishing. We take it, we give our guilt to God, and we leave it at the cross. For the first time, or the 10,000th time, God still forgives. The way in is the way on. And in doing that, we receive his forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness, and his grace, and his mercy. It's a gift. We don't earn it. And I know this is a, a controversial theological point when people say, well, can we lose our forgiveness? Well, I actually don't think we can because, not because of you know, my view of myself, because I know what I'm like, but my view of God's love. You know, I didn't turn my way into the kingdom, so I can't sin my way out of it, in my view. That's what I can see. God, it's through his grace. So that's the first thing we do. We go to God. The second thing we do is we decide to be people who give grace away. We serve a wonderful God who has given us so much, lavishing his love on us again and again and again. And as we all know, in our world, in our university, in our course, in our whole residence, in our house, wherever we work, our place of work, our schools or whatever, there are people who are hurting, who are bruised, who are bleeding for many, many different reasons. Our neighbors desperately need to know the love and the grace of God, even though they might not be aware of that yet. The great thing is this, God gives us love and grace and all that stuff so that not only can we receive it, but also so that we can give it away. There's this lovely godly economy that says we receive and we give. And the funny thing is, is that when we give it away, God gives us more. We can never ever outgive God. And my prayer is that us as a church and us as individuals, that we are first of all people, that when we, when we stumble, when we fall, when the shaking comes, when our foundations are knocked and we feel like we've fallen over, that we know that we can come and pray that prayer, Lord have mercy on me a sinner, and receive the grace that God promises and that he always gives. And then that we are people who know how to give that grace away, to give away what we have and what God has given us. You know, the, if we do that, 
you know, we talk about being countercultural. That is the ultimate way of being countercultural in this time where so much of the messaging is about outrage, unforgiveness, getting even, all these sorts of things. Countercultural means giving away the grace where people have been weak and sinful. So that's what I would commend to you, really. If you are one of those people with feeling that you've just been going through a time and you're wondering how God sees you, know this. He loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. And that's because you were bought with the precious blood of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely amazed at how complete, completely bonkers this thing of grace appears. That we who so often have no merit are given that incredible royal standing because of Jesus. And Lord, I just pray tonight for those people who are feeling unworthy, who are feeling unloved or unlovable, maybe who are feeling a bit defeated, maybe who are a bit fed up with themselves, maybe wondering, well, you know, hey, I'm struggling with this thing, you know, again and again and again. Can God really, really love and forgive me? Lord, I just pray right now that you'd come, Holy Spirit, and speak truth. Speak your truth to us. Lord, the words that you give us in your book that tell us the truth, I pray that you'd set those words and you would put them deep, deep, deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray break guilt, break condemnation. Lord, break nasty words spoken over people, Lord, I pray. Make us, Lord, I pray, people who are good at receiving your grace and who are good at giving it away. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.